it. Hey, um, I mentioned in the first service too, um, uh, I'm probably still on probation from the Ricky Bobby quote uh, from the last sermon, uh, so I'm, I'm now uh, getting all my quotes vetted by the, uh, the lead pastor, and this one was approved, so I'm actually going to be uh, quoting the movie uh, Gladiator uh, at the first part this morning, so anyway, y'all, y'all pray for me, hopefully the probation will end at some point. But I'm, I suspect that most of you have seen that movie. You know, great movie, you know, 10 years old or so, probably 15 years old. Um, I'm not sure I would call it historical fiction, but it's probably pretty close to how Roman society was during the time of Jesus. And anyway, uh, the movie is about the general uh, named Maximus. Uh, he was from Spain. He was the most trusted general to the emperor at the time, Marcus Aurelius. In fact, he was so trusted, he was almost considered a son uh, to the emperor. And even though all Maximus wanted to do after defeating all the Germanic tribes was go home, Marcus Aurelius wants him to be a successor and wants Rome to be a republic. And, and that sounds great, except that what? Well, Marcus Aurelius had a son named Commodus who wasn't exactly thrilled uh, with that idea. All right, I'm going to stop right there. If you haven't seen the movie and you want to, this is where you should, <laughs> this is where you should cover your ears. I see one, um, because I am thoroughly going to spoil this ending uh, this morning. So anyway, um, uh, what Commodus does, uh, not only does he kill his father, uh, he has Maximus's family killed. Uh, he attempts to kill Maximus, uh, who escapes. He becomes a slave, and he ends up a gladiator. And as fate would have it, he makes his way back to Rome to fight there. And in a remarkable twist, he finds himself face-to-face with Commodus. And what does he say on the introduction? It's awesome. He says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And if you remember, he goes on to have the the battle. Um, He does not kill his opponent. He, in fact, he drops his sword in the crowd chants, Maximus the Merciful. Great, great movie. Um, How in the world is this related to the sermon this morning? And uh, I, I, that may be a theme, actually, when I preach. Um, well, uh, during that time, kings and queens and emperors and royalty and the like, uh, not only did they have their title, they had a name, you know, the great, the merciful, uh, in this case, the loyal servant. And it's not a name that you would use to address them. It was a name that more described them, and it described their nature, it described their character. It was essentially their essence, if you will. So this morning, as we read Isaiah, uh, we see the same description in the foretelling of the Messiah. His name shall be, and thus the title of our sermon this morning, His name shall be Mighty God. And this is the second second sermon uh, in this series. And so before we get into the, um, the sermon, just a little bit of background on Isaiah. The book was written about 700 years ago, uh, before, 700 years ago, 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, somewhere in the late 700s. Uh, Isaiah had about a 40 to 50 year career as a prophet. He's widely regarded as the greatest Old Testament prophet. Uh, some of the early church fathers even considered him a sort of apostle and evangelist. 
Uh, it's, you know, the book of Isaiah is one of the prophetic books. And when we talk about prophecy, I, I want to address one point here. So oftentimes I think we can view prophecies and prophets as sort of a religious uh, fortune teller, if you will. But that's, that's not really the case. That's not the case at all. And in one of my old textbooks, I found a quote about this that's much better than I could write. And so um, I'm going to read it. It says, these prophecies should be thought of as an inspired proclamation of God's message. An inspired proclamation of God's message. That sounds very similar to how we view our scripture, because in this case it is our scripture. And this is the same thing that Peter tells us about this in the New Testament. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, P- Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so at this time, the secular world at this time uh, certainly had its share of prophets, often referred to as sorcerers, uh, seers, and fortune tellers. But, but the striking difference between our prophetic books and those who, between our prophetic books and theirs is those, who, I'm sorry, who they were written to. I'm having trouble this morning. Um, for our books, they're written to an entire nation, for all of us. Uh, on the counter, the secular world had prophecies written at that time to kings. And further, the standard and the building blocks of the messages of these prophecies is on a standard of goodness and on a standard of holiness and on a standard of righteousness because they were centered on God, Israel's God. Israel's God and our God cannot be compared to or cannot be paralleled to the pagan gods of the day because our God's plan affects the entire world and all of it, and in it, his will will be done. During this time, Isaiah prophesied. He prophesied during the reign of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, One of the northern kingdoms of Israel was falling to the Assyrians at the time. There was unrest. But unlike the other Old Testament prophets, prophets, Isaiah was prophesying right in the middle of the chaos of his own time. And we have many different themes throughout the book of Isaiah, but probably the best and the one that's most centered here today is the theme of the trust of God, the trusting of God during the chaos. You know, he talks at this time of total destruction, but in the speak of total destruction and in the prophecy of total destruction, he's promising hope. He's promising hope to us through a Savior. And this is a hope like no other. So with that, let's go and get into the scripture this morning from chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there is a lot 
in these two verses. It does a lot for us. So let's look at the first thing this verse, or these two verses do for us this morning. The first thing it does, it affirms the deity of Christ. It affirms the deity of Christ. And we really see this mention of the deity of the coming Savior uh, mentioned in verse 6 from the opening, for to us a child is born. For to us a child is born is an indicator that our Savior is going to be human. He will be born as a human child. But to, a son, to us a son is given, on the other hand, shows us that our Savior will be from God. And I like this. I like this contrast. Andrew touched on it last week as well. Because what this is, this is a promise. A human, a human son, a human child will be born and a divine son Will be given. A human child will be born, a divine son will be given. In, in the original language, the Hebrew words used here for, for mighty God are El Gabor. And El Gabor here means, El here means God. And it is the same word used in Genesis 1 1 as in the creator of the heavens and the earth. The exact word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. So the Savior that we are promised in this passage, the Savior that Isaiah prophesies, in this passage, is God, born human but divine. And make no mistake with this, it's important to recognize this from Scripture, that our Savior is God. Now, this is where um, some other religions uh, make an error here, and I think this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses make a fatal error in their translation of these two words, El Gabor, um, mighty God. They don't translate this in the same way we do, um, it, it, they rather, in my opinion, falsely claim that Scripture tells of a created being inferior to God, of God, but not God. And, and this is not correct, and I'm not going to read every supporting Scripture to the contrary, but some of the following, uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. In their Scripture, they add an article uh, A at the end, so in the beginning was the Word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. And um, yeah, and unfortunately, that is absolutely uh, not correct. We move forward into John 17, 3, 20, 28, Acts 5, Titus 2. So all of this points to exactly what we're getting at this morning. Also, there's an issue with mighty God. Contending, they contend that um, in order to refer to God, it must be almighty God, not mighty God again. Uh, that is also incorrect. It is repeatedly uh, referred to. He is repeatedly referred to in this way uh, throughout Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the Psalms. Uh, so end of note on Jehovah's Witnesses there. I will say uh, I was listening to a sermon about this passage uh, this week uh, by Alistair Begg. And some of you may know him. Um, he's from Scotland. Um, has a really thick Scottish accent. And he was talking about the book of Sam's. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's like a clever way to refer, refer to First and Second Samuel, I guess. You know, okay, yeah, Sam's, yeah, get on that train. And then he said something about Sam's 119. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't think there's that many chapters in Samuel. And turns out with the Scottish accent, you pronounce Psalms as Sam's. So uh, that, that's your fun fact uh, for this morning, so be warned. Uh, there's not 119 chapters in Samuel. Um, getting back on track. Um, so as Christians, obviously, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in a triune God and that Jesus, who was God, was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day he rose. 
And if Jesus was not fully God, as prophesied by Isaiah, then we have a very big problem, don't we? You know, Spurgeon says this on this topic. He says it in particularly on the word El, meaning God in this passage, and on the divinity of Christ. And he kind of paraphrases back and forth from the Apostle Paul here. But he says, if Christ isn't risen, then this preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain, and you're yet in your sins. Now, I may fairly use the Apostle's line of argument in reference to the Godhead and sonship of Christ, of which his resurrection gave such a palpable demonstration. And here's this quote. He says, If Christ be not the Son of God, then our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain, and ye are yet in your sins. All our visions of heaven are blasted and withered. The brightness of our hope is quenched forever. That rock on which our trust is built turns out to be nothing better than mere sand if the divinity of Christ be not proved. All the joy and consolation we ever had in this world and our belief that his blood was sufficient to atone for sin has been but a dream of fancy and a figment of idle brains. All the communion we have ever had with him has been but an illusion in a trance. And all the hopes we have had of beholding his face in glory and of being satisfied when we awaken his likeness are but the foulest delusions that ever cheated the hopes of man. Oh, my brethren, can any of you believe that the blood of all the martyrs has been shed as a witness to a lie? Have all those who have rotted in Roman dungeons or have been burned at the stake because they witnessed that Christ was God died in vain? Verily, if Christ be not God, we of all men the most miserable. And keep in mind here, when going back to the names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, you know, as we said, these aren't mentioned in the same sense that we're going to be referring to the coming Savior in this way, that we're going to be referring to the Messiah in this way. And so the, uh, here Isaiah foretells that the coming Messiah will be God, and these are his at attributes. Not just a prophet, not just a messenger in this case, but God. And not everyone believed Isaiah. Not everyone believed him then, and not everyone believes him now. And that is also prophesied by Isaiah. And he said not everyone's going to believe. And this was so much so fulfilled that Jesus himself quotes Isaiah on this very topic. In the book of Matthew, in chapter 13, Jesus is answering the disciples on why he talks in parables. And in verses 13 through 16, he says this, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And Luke reiterates this in Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, when he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Messiah prophesied is to be God, and the Messiah is God. 
The, the next thing he does in these two words, the next thing he tells us in this name is that he will be powerful. And he's going to be powerful in many ways. You know, the, the Hebrew word, as we mentioned, was gabor in this case. And King James Version translates it in words like this. Mighty, mighty man, strong, valiant, champion, chief, upright, mightiest, strongest. So what we're seeing here and what we see in this theme is power. You know, power in almost a military sense. Divine power. And Peter speaks to this as well in 2 Peter 1. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So when Isaiah says that a son is being given to us, not only do we know of his divine nature, we also know that he will be powerful. And now you may think that's a bit odd, because if you think, well, if he's divine, certainly wouldn't he be powerful? Of course, but the word strong is not used here. It was mighty and valiant and champion and upright. You know, the pagan gods of the day were powerful according to the people who believed in him. But you read story after story of their immoral escapades. In fact, the the two most known pagan deities of the time were Baal and Asherah. And I want you to listen to how they operated. And further, not only how they operated, but how the people worshipped them. So for Baal, the worshippers appeased him by offering sacrifices, usually animals such as sheep or bulls, At times of crisis, Baal's followers sacrificed their children, apparently the firstborn of the community, to gain prosperity. Now, counter to this, the Bible calls this practice obviously detestable. God specifically appoints the tribe of Levi as his special servants in place of the firstborn of the Israelites, so they had no excuse to offer their children as sacrifice. But the Bible's repeated condemnation of this shows God's hatred of it, and particularly among his people. Now, Asherah, on the other hand, was believed to be worshipped in various ways, um, to include through ritual sex. And though she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. And you know, the pagans at the time practiced sympathetic ma- magic, is what they called it. And that is, they believed they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior that they wished the gods to demonstrate. And they believed that this sexual union between Baal and Asherah produced fertility and so their worshipers engaged in this to cause the, the gods to join together and to ensure good harvest. So we're seeing the contrast here, I believe. You know, these false gods certainly do not compare to the gift that Isaiah is foretelling here. And in his use of the word mighty, in his use of the word gabor. And this is what we see God doing all throughout the Old Testament, reminding his people of the stark contrast between who he is and who the gods of the day are. Who he is and and who the flavor of the culture is at the time, because at the end of the day, he is holy and they are not. And he is just and they are not. And he is mighty and he is valiant and they are not. He loves us, but they are indifferent. He wants to rescue us, but they're apathetic. 
He wants us to live with him in eternity. And they have no desire for that because, again, they're indifferent. Uh, if you're familiar with the author and the Romanian-born uh, Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, who wrote the book Night, um, a great book about the Holocaust. But he has this quote, and he says, The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. And I think I agree with this quote to a degree uh, because, you know, outside, uh, I, I believe we all have a righteous hatred of sin, and we are certainly not uh, indifferent to sin. But, but I see what he's getting at. And if you look at the gods worshipped by the pagans, they were indifferent to the people, but the people worshipped them for one reason, for what they could get in this present world. Fertility, r- relief during crisis, prosperity. All that the world, all that this world has to offer. And their hearts were so set on it. Their hearts were so set on what the world has to offer, they would do anything for it. They would prostitute themselves for it. They would sacrifice their children for it. This is is the human heart right here in a fallen world apart from the Spirit of God is what this is. This is it, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for me to prosper. You know, there exists no greater contrast between this and our creator God. Between our powerful and valiant and holy God. Between our rescuer, foretold of thousands of years before his birth. From prophet after prophet. Our savior. Our mighty God. And so finally this morning, the scripture through this prophecy promises help. It promises help and it gives us hope. The entire Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the entire scripture points to Jesus. And you may have heard it said that he is concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New or um, contained in the Old and explained in, in the New. And there's all types of cool rhyming ways to do that. But regardless of how you've heard it, the truth is our scriptures point to him. Everything in it points to him from Genesis forward. You, you may have heard that, that phrase, proto-evangelium, a, a fancy two-word uh, Greek combo that means first good news, referring to the 15th, verse of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Our Savior, our mighty God. The promise of him is contained in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first good news. This is the first reference to the coming of our help. This is the first reference to our rescue. This is the first reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help is coming. You know, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But God says, I'm sending you a way out. I am going to send you a mighty God. And for that reason, for that reason, we have hope. Matthew Henry says this about this section, Genesis 3.15. He says, a gracious promise here is made of Christ as the deliverer of fallen man from the power of Satan. Though what was said was addressed to the serpent, yet it was said in the hearing of our first parents, who doubtless 
took the hints of grace here given them and saw a door of hope open to them, else the following sentence upon themselves would have overwhelmed them. Here was the dawning of the gospel day. No sooner was the wound given that the remedy was provided and revealed. Here in the head of the book, as the word is, in the beginning of the Bible is written of Christ, that he should do the will of God. By faith in this promise, we have reason to think our first parents and the patriarchs before the flood were justified and saved and to this promise and the benefit of it, instantly serving God day and night, they hope to come. You know, and Henry, Henry goes on to say a lot about this, but he says through this we, we find three things, we know three things about Christ. And it's in complete agreement with what we're reading out of Isaiah this morning. And he says this of Christ, that Christ will come from God, and he is God, that he is human and he will suffer, and that he is victorious over Satan. And again, this is where we get our hope, our foretold help is where we get our hope. And no matter what we experience or, or what we suffer in this fallen world, all will be made right. We will be justified through him. He is our substitutionary atonement, him in our place, and we will once again live in perfect conditions. This is where the hope comes from. This is the help we are promised from mighty God. This is the hope that we have in mighty God. Paul writes this from 1 Corinthians. He says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he certainly not speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so this morning, you know, we've seen a lot captured in this one name. This one name, Mighty God. We've seen that the two words, El Gabor, we see that the Messiah is prophesied by Isaiah is going to be divine. He will be God because he is God. We see two parts of the Trinity at work here in this, in this God dance, as C.S. Lewis would refer to it. And we also see that the coming Messiah will be powerful. And not just strong in some you know, pagan God sense, as we talked about, but powerful and good and valiant, a just and powerful ruler, and a just and powerful authority. And Jesus says this actually directly when he addresses the disciples in the sentence directly before the Great Commission. He says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then the Great Commission, go, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this morning, as we bring the gospel into this, as we integrate the gospel into the message this morning, we see that from the very beginning of our scripture, from the very beginning of creation, immediately after sin was introduced in the world, not, not of God, but from man, God had already designed our way out. 
We're told this from Genesis 3.15. And from that point, Jesus and his coming is concealed within the entirety of the Old Testament. Prophet after prophet tells of a redemption. This is a redemption story. This is our redemption story. This is mankind redeemed to the creator. And this is the gospel. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. In our series on Romans, Andrew and Jake did an amazing job. And if you remember the lessons that we took from that, we had three lessons that we learned from that series. He is for you now. He condemns you never. And he loves you always. The mighty God loves you so much that he did that for you. And so knowing that, knowing all of that, what do we do with it? What do we take with us today? How do we apply that in 2023 at the tail end of 2023? Well, we go to him. We go to him, the one who knows. We go to him, the one who knows us. And we believe in him. And we have faith in him. And we love him. We believe in him, we have faith in him, and we love him. We read his word. We read his word knowing that his word reveals to us who he is. It reveals to us who we are. And it reveals to us what we're meant to do. His special revelation to us through that word. And that's why it's so important, and that is why it's so incredibly important to immerse ourselves in it. To immerse ourselves in his word. Also, we show mercy and forgiveness to our fellow man. If your heart has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have been forgiven of your past, present, and future sins, how much more should we forgive those who sin against us? How much more? How much more should we forgive those who talk about us? Who, who discredit us, who lie about us, who gossip about us behind our backs. Listen, we have been given life. We've been given life, and we have been spared death, and we have been forgiven. And sometimes we need a reminder that we need to act like that. We need to act like that because it saddens me when I hear Christians who are overcome by anger and revenge for past slights or past wrongs, um, past affronts, past sharp words, you know, whether from a person or an entity. Um, th- this morning, I think the loving reminder is it's time for us to get past that. It is time for us to get over that. And I have to tell myself that very same thing. I have to tell myself to, keep, keep, to stop keeping a mental tally of everyone who has done me wrong. Stop keeping a mental tally of everyone that has slighted me, whether real or perceived, because I certainly rejoice in the knowledge that God is not keeping that same tally on me and of all the times that I fail him. You know, at the end of the day, he has replaced my sinful life with Jesus' perfect life. He has, he has substituted that perfect life for mine. My sinful life replaced by his. He let Jesus take the punishment I should face. He let Jesus take the death that I should die. And he let Jesus experience the separation that I should experience so that I 
can walk to the throne of grace into his arms as a new creation. Sinless, blameless, and redeemed. Sinless, blameless, and redeemed. And and now I recognize that some things in your past aren't that simple. And I don't want you to take my previous comments as a slight to some of you who have experienced awful things at the hand of another. Awful and evil things at, at the hand of another. But there is times, there is a time, and I would challenge you that now is the time to begin to give that up. To begin to give that to the one who can handle it. And to give that to the one who can carry it. To give that to the one who tells us that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. Give it to him. And finally this morning, rest in that peace. Rest in that peace provided by him. And I don't want to spoil the, uh, the fourth sermon in the series on the Prince of Peace. But we know that he can provide it. And he is the only one who can provide it. So that when life happens, as life happens and tragedies strike and your health fails and finances dwindle, we can still walk through this world in peace. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled Neither let them be afraid. And I love that verse. And I love that verse for a lot of reasons. But I think the main reason I love it is because it shows the humanity of our Savior. Because he knows us. He knows us because he was us and he became us. And he knows that when we lose someone, we're by nature afraid. And he was leaving them. And he knew that they were going to be afraid. And to that point, what do we do? Well, we fret and we worry and we fear and we get anxious and we get nervous and we get scared. That's what we do. And so here in this verse, after promising us a helper, after promising us the Holy Spirit, he tells us not to. He's given us something from him that is not from the world. And that should be a comfort to us. Our mighty God says, please don't be troubled. Please don't be afraid. My mother passed away in 2008 unexpectedly at 57 years old, and it was awful. And I'd never experienced a grief like that, and I have yet to. But one thought that I couldn't get past, and one question that seemed to, seemed to haunt me, for a lack of a better word, was, was she afraid? Was she afraid? And I hoped that she wasn't, but I could not believe how she couldn't have been. Unfortunately, I was not a a true believer at the time, and seeing her life cut short at that age, I was afraid for her, among other emotions, but there was one thing about her, is that she was a believer, and she was a believer in our Savior, and she was a believer in our mighty God, and the more that I've come to know him, the more I take comfort that from whatever temporary fear she may have experienced... The overwhelming joy of being in the presence of her Savior would make that temporary emotion extinct and extinct forever and for all eternity. And I know that one day we will meet again in just as real a place as we are standing here today, but absent of sin and absent of pain and absent of suffering. And that will be a glorious day. And that's what I want you to take with you today, that peace, especially this week, this month, you know, in this season, 
as we celebrate. We are celebrating the human birth of our divine rescuer. And if you know him, celebrate that. Celebrate that birth. Celebrate the birth that changed the world forever. And if you don't, if you don't know him, I'd like to ask you to look at the evidence. Simple as that. Look at the evidence. You know, the title of the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Look at the evidence because at the end of the day, the verdict on the evidence is truth. And not this new age, your truth, my truth, everybody's truth, but truth in the truest sense it is. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of our Savior. Put, put Christianity up against any worldview, any of the competing ones. Test it, scrutinizing, scrutinize it. We're all given brains uh, for a reason to do this, test it, because it will all point back to the one mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It all points back to the truth. Um, Lee Strobel, you know, the atheist who became a believer, um, he's a reporter, I think, for the Chicago Tribune. He said this, uh, I always love this quote, he said, To continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything, Non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. I simply didn't have that much faith. And be careful, though. Be careful, because as we go throughout the world, society is going to tell you the opposite. They're going to tell you that this is silly, that this isn't true. Society is going to tell you that this is wishful thinking, you know, in an attempt to make us feel better about our impending you know, deaths, about our own mortality. So don't be surprised by that. Uh, don't be surprised that we'll be mocked by society. We'll be called intolerant. We'll be called simple. We'll be called fanatics. Listen, Jesus said that was going to happen. He said exactly from the beginning that was how it was going to happen, and so we don't need to be surprised by that either. It's not new. It's been happening since before his ministry began. So this morning, if you need help with this, if you need help with your walk with Christ. Listen, we're here for you. Uh, you know, like the quote says, we are just beggars showing other beggars for, you know, where to find the bread. We're here for you. We will walk through this with you. If you have questions, we'll answer them with you. you know, we can show you that freedom, that freedom from all the mess in your life, the freedom from the shame and the guilt and everything you have struggling with. Right? We can show you that freedom and that freedom that's found in Jesus Christ. Most of you remember Ann Stewart, our uh, dear partner who passed away in the spring. And um, on that freedom, I couldn't help but remember uh, this. You know, back in the um, early spring, she was diagnosed with a very serious disease. And the long-term prognosis wasn't good. And to be honest, I was sad. I was sad about it. Um, I, I, I was sad because I enjoyed her. I enjoyed her in our small groups. I enjoyed her spirit. I enjoyed her love for the church and the people. I en enjoyed her insights. But the, um, the last text message I received from her before she passed away was on April 29th at 7.58 p.m. And uh, we actually read this uh, at her funeral. And for that freedom, I can think of no better quote. And she sent me this message. She said, if maturity is shown in my life, it's because I prayed for it for decades. It's a walk through the fire, rejoice in the valley, and now in the face of the valley of the shadow of death, he is here too, because she was free from it, and you could see that she was free from it, and though she was sick, she was free, and you can have that as well. You can have that very same freedom. 
ending as C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for gathering us all together. Father, you know our brokenness and you know the pain and the struggles that we all go through. And um, Father, we're here together, all of us bringing everything that we have going on in our lives uh, to you today, Father. And we love you and we thank you. And in this season, we thank you for our way out. And we thank you for giving us a way out, for giving us Jesus, for giving us our Savior. We ask that during the season, Father, you help us to remember that and to remember all that you have given us and to help us grow in our faith so that we can have that peace that you speak of, Father. Thank you so very much, and we pray in your mighty name. Amen.